You better be serious now because this is the beginning of yet another great gathering of conversation about baseball. On behalf of our, our leaders and our producers, John and Susan Walsh, and uh, the inspiration for this show, Clint Hurdle, here's episode three. I'm Darren Sutton. This is 13 pieces of bubblegum. Clint, you did it for us this time. You stepped in. You are the executive producer of this show as you have reached out and you have pulled in a great <coughs> guest. I'm selfish because I want him as a dad. Probably John wants to talk to him as a player. You have so many interactions. We're having Matt Holiday on this show. Well done, my friend. Thank you. I'm very fortunate yeah, to look have been you. longtime friends with Matt, uh, his wife, Leslie, the kids. My God, we had Jackson, who's gone through our perfect game program for years now. We had Jackson in the clubhouse when he was three years old, taking better swings than some yes. of the guys that were on our 25-man <laughs> roster. It was, it was kind of crazy. But I've got to watch Matt grow up. I've got to watch him, you know, grow physically. And hence the, the nickname I've, I've got for him called Big Daddy. I called him Big Daddy. Just this big old guy, get around his kids, and he just turned into this soft, lovable daddy. But I got to watch him grow up spiritually. I got to watch him grow up professionally, personally. Uh, he matured. He and Leslie have a tremendous story and a tremendous relationship. <laughs> so we're going to be able to rattle some questions at him and have some fun today because he's a very interesting cat. Whoa. Oh, boy. Was he safe? Was he safe in that slide in 07? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is we went on to Philadelphia and play, so my understanding is safe. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. Oh, that's great. Oh, I love that. That is excellent. Oh, that is excellent, excellent stuff. I love that. Hey, number three, this is the third podcast. So number three, we always think of the obvious. Clint has... Clint and John, I, I'm, I don't know if Susan, I'll blame this on you, but we have to. And by the way, there are there are yeah. there are writers out there that are stealing yeah. the idea from our podcast. An SB Nation site dedicated um, the best Diamondbacks number sixteen, stealing the idea from you, Clint Hurdle, and you, John Walsh, on putting numbers on the episode number. Um, so, John, kudos to you on the idea that I don't know <laughs> that I still love it today, but I think it's a good idea. Form of flattery, flattery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So congratulations. Absolutely. And, and the writer uh, did uh, did give us credit and mentioned Clint and yourself, Darren. So I guess it's all, it's all fair. Good. It's all fair in the world. But <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't need. I don't need a mention. But you didn't get a I mention, will, John. You know, there was no I'm mention sorry. of you and uh, Susan. It begins and ends with Babe Ruth. I'm sorry. When you, if for kids, please just go and Google his numbers. It's a fun thing to do. I love numbers. Go look at baseball reference. Oh my God, are these numbers just eye-popping even today in the standard of the numbers that we see today? You know what? He would be an analytical researcher's dream if they just conjure back up the history. Uh, I don't even know if he had a ball card, but if you flip the back of the ball card that he didn't have, um, 1927 season, they were called Murderer's Row, and he was the, the biggest culprit in the middle of that thing. Um, 60 home runs, and he struck out only 90 times. I mean, for a guy to hit 60 home runs and strike how, out 90 how does, times. How does that compare, of, Clint? How does that compare, kind of compare to some of our slugs today? It would be it would be way above average. It would be <laughs> magnificently elite. He would be with Bonds. Uh, you know, he would. He would be with Bonds, and that's why you get that's why you get called the Bambino and the Sultan of SWAT, um, and all the movies that have, have you know come come after his his legacy, his history. 
Uh, the fact that, can you imagine if he had a Twitter account back in the day, the things that came out of this man's mouth that is still some have been recorded? And I was fortunate enough, and I'm going to move this over to Darren because he may have some stories. But when I came up to the big leagues in 77, there was a coach with the Angels named Jimmy Reese. Jimmy Reese was famous in our industry for hitting fungos. He could hit the pitcher's fungos as they ran laps. He could th almost throw batting practice to hitters with his fungo. He'd hit balls with his bat. He was a magician. He was an artist. It was like a conductor. On the other side of that, though, Jimmy Reese, I think, was the last person to, to room with the Bambino. Nice. Before the Bambino went solo and took his act on the road solo, and they would ask Jimmy Reese, they would ask Jimmy, what was it like to room with the Bambino? He said, I don't know. I only room with his luggage. Thank God there was no Twitter. Oh, you made me happy. Clint, you made me happy that Jimmy Reese mentioned, so I'm always the guy who tries to pull it back to the young people. Hey, all you youngsters that are listening, meaning prospects, when I was your age, your age, when I was 16, 17, and 18, Jimmy Reese was on the coaching staff for my father's team. I ran sprints with those pitchers. He did with a with a he'd take a regular Reggie Jackson baseball bat. He'd slice it in half so it served as a flat side like cricket, and he could hit. He could throw batting practice with that fungo bat. And uh, yes, he did room with with, with Babe Ruth's bag uh, and his luggage. But when I was your age, all you all you prospects out there, uh, I tried to chase your yeah. dreams with a dude like Jimmy Reese around. That's a good mention, Hurdle. Where, where'd you spend time with Jimmy Reese? Jimmy Reese, George Brett, who was, well, George Brett embraced me. He walked me into the big leagues. He held my hand. Um, sometimes he tripped me. Sometimes he hit me in the back of the head. But he would always point out information that he thought was valuable that not everybody had. As soon as we went to Anaheim, he told me about the Cowboy, the owner, Gene Autry, who I later would get to met when I, when I played with the Cardinals. But he'd also talk about uh, Jimmy Reese. He talked about Bobby Knopp, the second baseman, the biggest second baseman the game's ever known. But Jimmy Reese was the guy that George took me out and introduced me to one day and had him hit some fungos just to show me what he was capable of. So that's how I fell into Jimmy Reese. I thought about it the other day when we were thinking of threes. It went to the Bambino. It went to rooming with the Bambino's <laughs> luggage. It went to Jimmy Reese. So... There were seven degrees of separation. I finally got there. I, I had this great uh, opportunity to visit Baseball's Hall of Fame in December to honor my father in the year that he passed. And uh, it was amazing the amount uh, that the Ruth family, and I think Babe's attitude was the same, a giving attitude, you know, so much with him with young people, having come through being raised by a village, you know, in foster homes and different situations. Um, there is more Babe Ruth memorabilia, historical artifacts in the Hall of Fame than any other player. And so that speaks to the family's generosity. That speaks to who Babe was. I thought it was very, very cool. I think, I think what's cool about Babe is he was wildly progressive. You know, we talk about social media, players to push the envelope, the Dennis Rodman, if you will. He wasn't quite that extreme, but he was a guy who, you know, wanted to gather with some of the best players in the game, and we're in the middle of, and it may be over by the time this airs, of a labor difference in baseball, but he wanted to go out on his own barnstorming tours, and the game said, you can't, and he said, I'm going. And, you know, he was suspended multiple times, trying to grow the value of the game, trying to grow his own brand. He played progressively. Um, you know, there was nobody like him. And so for me, I, I love the fact that we look back on him because he's allowed, and a lot of people will say, and say it fairly, 
that his numbers were amongst a segregated league, and that's 100% fair. 100% fair. They were. But I still think his game and what he did was great for the game, and he would have been in a second in a, a non-segregated league. Do you think he would have been voted in the Hall of Fame today? I think he would have been an amazing player. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, that's a that's a fair question. You're talking about all the times he pushed the envelope. I, I do think when it came to the writers, though, John, the thing that wins is he was endearing. You know, he was he want he you know he he bought the first, second, and third round for them. You know, he 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 wasn't running from the writers. He wanted to kind of like social media today. He wanted to have them on his side, right, Clint? I mean, you, he wanted to have them on his side. He's he was quite progressive for a guy that was for lack of better words, under-educated. under-educated but however, Aaron Rodgers smart in using the media as his communication vessel. I mean, I can remember the one quote. There's a lot of them, but the one that I gravitated to as a kid, the strongest quote. This is just all male testosterone, just all over the place. They said, you know, babe, you realize that now with your new, with your new contract, you're going to be making more than yes. the president? He goes, well, I should. I had a better year than the president did. <laughs> That's back in the day. You couldn't talk about the president. You didn't that say president that about was Herbert the president. Hoover. <laughs> yeah. Babe didn't. No. Babe, babe, well, babe fed him and, and babe, babe delivered. That was the other thing that they were. He would let him know ahead of time things he was going to do to give him a heads up and then he'd follow through with it. So, you know, there was that level of trust that he did earn and he, he did care about him enough to feed him the stories and he helped them be better at their job in, in his own kind of, you know, crazy kind of school gang way. He called his shot. <clears throat> yeah, he would have been in, John. He would have absolutely been in just because of his relationship. Yeah, yeah he, he, he would have been in. I, I selfishly am going with number three, Chris Taylor of the Dodgers, because I know later on, first of all, um, I like his game a lot. I like the fact of what he's come through. Um, later on in the show, we're going to talk about focus and failure and a little bit of those concepts. I can't wait to talk with you, Clint, and with Matt about that, too. I mean, these are the guys, when we have you guys in, this is where we learn uh, as inquisitive minds. But let me let me quick share, uh, if we can, John, if you don't mind, a, a quick thought from Chris Taylor. He was recently a guest on our syndicated TV show, Perfect Game Weekly. He talked about hitting the wall after leaving the Mariners and being at his bottom low point. Let's listen. A swing chase followed. Here's Chris Taylor. You know, don't get so caught up in the results. Um, you know, I think... The most important thing when you're young is to constantly keep improving and getting better. And, um, you know, if you fail in high school or, like, you don't have a good game in the playoffs or, like, in the big the big picture, you know, that stuff, it's not going to matter other than the fact that did you, get, did you learn from it and did you get better? Um, you know, I've, I've had so many peaks and valleys and some of my lowest moments in my career were got me to this point and made me make those adjustments. Like I just talked about, that's just one example of my swing change. If I didn't struggle with the Mariners and, um, you know, I, I remember I had one of the worst games of my life, my last game with the Mariners before I got sent down and traded. If I didn't have that game, which was one of the lowest points of my career mentally, I really struggled with that. Um, if I didn't have that, none of this would have happened. I wouldn't have gotten traded to the Dodgers. I wouldn't have made these swing changes. And so I guess the big picture, just constantly, you know, learn from your failures 
and realize um, they're going to make you better in the long run and, and not get too down on yourself. So, Clint, there you go. I mean, in our pre-production meeting, we talked about pay attention. Have your eyes wide open when you're failing. Personally, in your life, in your marriage, in your profession, he clearly says, and it was advice to young athletes. That's why he gave that answer. Advice to young baseball players. Open your eyes wide when you're failing. Open them very wide and then try to grow from How there. How good is that? Um, there's so much to be learned through failure. Um, we'll get into that later. My number threes, and I had two of them. Growing up in the South, the baseball that we were fed was Braves baseball. So I was all over the Murph. Dale Murphy, you know, repeat offender, MVP, back-to-back seasons. You wouldn't meet a better guy. It was kind of like Andy Griffith in center field <laughs> with, a, with a huge toolkit uh, and a tool set that was just ridiculous. Um, the fact that I played against him in rookie league when he was a catcher, I'll take you back there, Darren. He came up as a catcher and unfortunately his throwing, uh, command from behind home plate was scattered. It was erratic at best. Sometimes when he'd throw it back to the pitcher, then the baseball version, they'd have to run a wheel play behind him for who was going to get the ball because the pitcher rarely got it. The ball would end up at short at second center field. He had a cannon, but it was just misdirected. When they put him in the outfield to give him the freedom just to let it go, oh, my gosh. I mean, what happened happened. He was one of the best players in the game, one of the most consistent players in the game, one of the most humble players in the game. Lou Gehrig, humble. So he was my first number three. And my second number three, because I'm not a NASCAR guy, but I'm telling you, in Florida, we saw a lot of Dale Earnhardt. We saw a lot of that black car, that red car, that blue car, whatever car color he had, he slapped that three on it. New Dale's in town and things were going to be hot and contested to finish. <laughs> Nothing better than a Daytona 500 in Florida in springtime and Dale Earnhardt coming to town. So those, those were my two threes. Pretty solid list. John, do you have, an, do you have additional no. threes, guys? I, or are you starting got, an ending with Babe Ruth? How did we get? We yeah. managed oh, NASCAR in the show, by How the about way, that? real quick. Yeah. You know, we managed to slide NASCAR. All inclusive. In the show. <laughs> yeah, very inclusive. No, I just said. So, I got so what were you going to say? Mind, so I'm just, I'm sticking with his, <laughs> his story. <laughs> Everything okay in the in the at the mothership? We got to make sure, Clint. You no, might have to step in and console. You know, you got a shortstop in a second. Was, you got a double play no, combo. Was, not getting along. Sharing a sharing. Over the top the bamboo, and I just said, okay, yep. <laughs> There was nowhere to go. I, I'm just, I'm kind of speechless because I'm in awe of the way you segue, Darren. It reminds me <laughs> of the, the uh, banquets at the All-American game, how you dead roll stuff in. And then number two, I just, I'm in, with Clint, the encyclopedia mind, the descriptions. I, this, I love, I could spend all day with Clint, just throw a name out and have him talk about, because that's my era. 70s, I got every baseball card from the 70s. That is my era. So, Clint, it's an honor to listen to talk baseball. Sorry, folks. I know we're talking old time. So let's do this, Clint, while John kisses up to you. Let's do this. Let's plan a time sometime this summer. And, and for all our listeners out there, her name is Jennifer Ford. She runs the Perfect Game Cares Foundation. If, if You put your money where your mouth is, John, and we'll raise money. We're gonna go, we'll go live. We'll just go live. Right, we'll just stream it out live, right? Maybe YouTube, and we'll start throwing and and when every name you can think of, and when Clint runs out of stories, yeah. awesome. then we'll be done. 
That, that'll be it. Maybe a 12-hour show, <laughs> but we want donors. We need to raise like $50,000 for Perfect Game Cares. Here's what I think we'll learn, though, that even if there wasn't an interaction, Clint's still going to be a great storyteller. Oh, my There's God. Going to be a six, tie, degrees. six degrees. Clint, can you commit to doing this right now? Will you commit to doing this right now? I'm in. <laughs> I will. I'll John, bring up my bid, oh, and God. I'll just start pulling cards up. You know that? And I'll just... We'll, Oh, okay. That's always fun. <laughs> hey, oh, you have no idea. We, we will. <laughs> we have somebody from Snoop's checking my stories for yeah. actual. Absolutely you know, not. The fact no, that about, no, no fact checking allowed. No, no. Or I would have been out of a job. <laughs> I would have been out of a job decades ago if that was happening. Stretch the truth. I would have been out of a job decades ago. That's what makes the best. Stories. There's a turn. As long as you can touch, as long as you can put your hand on one end and touch your toe to the truth. Amen. Thank you. That, that's where I was You're going. Fine. That's where I was going. Because my wife will tell you I have an ability, not a dependability, but an ability to stretch things uh, really? out and embellish. Those make the best stories. That's an ability. That's good stuff. That's called content. That's called content. Suddenly I've been told that's valuable Story stuff. Telling. Hey, um... What's on your mind? I, I know that we talked about some things on your mind, the evolution of baseball. This is where I'm intrigued for our younger listeners to listen. Jason Stark wrote a great article, and thank you guys for sharing that with all of us. Um, you know, uh, what we can learn from the NFL playoffs. I certainly have some thoughts on it. And a lot of times it goes to the antithesis of where you guys are at. But, Clint, what's on your mind? Let's start with you. Uh, from the NFL playoffs, how about the playoff games, the quality of the playoff games, all of the playoff games? It came down to the best players making plays. And no better synopsis than the last drive of the Rams in the Super Bowl with multiple offensive weapons out of the game. It's Stafford and, <laughs> and the receiver, Coop. Cup. I mean, it, that's it. And I can remember hearing later on the sideline chat was just, hey, you guys figure it out. You know, just lean into one another. Go, go play some backyard ball. And that's what they did the whole way down there. And I think the beauty of, of what baseball has had in the past, and maybe we're not, we don't have as good a grip, but we don't have as good a grip on now, is let, getting the, the best pitchers to pitch. Um, and there's, we can go a lot of different places with that. However, my, to shrink this down and get, get out of the way so somebody else can share their thoughts, my biggest challenge, and I've shared this across the spectrum of sports. I've shared it in different organizations in the last two years. I've shared, shared it with people involved with MLB. I've shared it with general managers, managers, players. We are not allowing players in today's game to fail. And, you know, it almost goes back to being on the, the playground as a kid. Can you imagine the first time you're on a playground and a kid, and inevitably it happens to a lot of kids back in the day, you get punched. You get hit in the mouth. You tasted your own blood. What did you do? Did you go home and tell your dad? Did you walk off, kind of reset yourself, wipe the blood off, and get back on the playground? We're not giving players the chance to, to, to fail and maybe repeatedly fail and then get back out there, push them back out there. Pete Rose went to, I think, six or seven tryout camps for the Reds before he finally stuck. They told him to go home like six times. He kept coming back. It was like a boomerang. So there's something to be said for the resiliency. I think there's something to be said for the perseverance. I think there's something that can help players become elite and develop courage and develop strength and develop you know, cohesion and teamwork when they failed and people watch how they react to failure, how they handle failure. Well, look, our, 
scouts will tell you they're watching that, right, Clint? I mean, scouts will tell all young athletes out there, 15 to, to 18, at a, at, a, at a perfect game or a high school game, they're watching that, correct? Absolutely. You want – I have actually was at a game the last week, and the scout says, I, I hope so-and-so has a collar today. What then, baseball terms, that's an 0 for 4, a collar, a size 4 collar, a size 5 collar. And I go – it just made me laugh. He goes, you get it, don't you? I go, yeah, all you've seen him do is have success. He goes, all he's ever had is success. I'd like to see a bad day, a couple pop-ups, a couple strikeouts, men on base, just to see the body language or to see. I said, well, keep watching him. You know, the game has a way of teaching us lessons. And if you don't learn a lesson much like in life, what do you get? You get the same lesson wrapped up differently and you get it again. Once you learn that lesson, what's the prize? You get a different lesson. So for young players, you know, your, your, your boy Taylor said it, you know, have your eyes wide open as you're walking through failure, as you're walking into failure, and then most importantly, as you're walking out of failure, because that's a good feeling too, that know that you, you know, you've pressed on, you, you've held fast, you've, you've been steadfast with your approach, things have worked out, but you've been burnt. Uh, what do they say? No dime, no pressure, no diamonds. And without pressure, yeah. you're not going to be the best version of yourself and see how you deal with it. Yeah, I, I talked to, to, to R.J. Austin. I know you know him. He's a perfect game All-American and a 2022 grad. He's a Vandy commit, so he's checked every box as far as taking care of his business at home. And he went to Perfect Games' big event in Jupiter last year, and he was one or two for something. Sorry, R.J., I don't remember. But I, I asked him about it. W what was the experience like? I left the door open. I left it wide open. What was that experience like? He said it was eye-opening for me. It was good. It was good. I didn't say what was it like to hit one whatever or zero whatever um, at the Jupiter event. He's going to Vanderbilt. Dude's an All-American. He could also be a closer for Vanderbilt someday, too. So I do get excited when I do hear about the, the athletes that will address it correctly. They will immediately address it. I got to say, like, John, it feels like that starts at home, though. I, I, I'm, when you're talking about a minor and you're talking about an 18-, 17-, 16-year-old prospect— the kind of failure thing, I, I think a lot of that, much like we, we, we talk about, hey, this young man's played in too many travel ball events or he's thrown too many innings. I still think that starts at home with yeah, the parents. Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things you have to be able to tell your kid sometimes something that he doesn't want to hear. Well, instead right. of telling them, oh, the, the, the umpire made a bad call or painting them out as a victim, like you have to have people who love you and support you that'll shoot straight with you. You know, like in, at first you're angry. Oh, this stinks, right? And then you let the anger pass and you're like, okay, let's have a real conversation, you know, and, and help them find the growth, especially for kids. I used to always tell my kids, you know, you can't pick your coach, you can't pick your teacher, and you certainly aren't going to be able to pick your boss. So you better realize it and get along and figure it out. Yeah, it's parenting a lot, isn't it, Clint? I mean, th th that's, that sounds like a pressure thing, but we all had kids for a reason, right? I mean, most of us anyway. There are surprises along the way throughout our world, but um, a lot of, to me, a lot of what you're talking about, Clint, with, hey, you're concerned looking at the modern athlete, you're concerned about their dealing with failure. I, the one thing I've noticed, and Clint, I, I love your perspective to the prospect space because I'm already a little bit, you know, clouded. I'm in the vacuum. Um, but I feel like as it goes from 12 or 11 – up to 17 and 18 at the elite level, to be fair to all our listeners, at the e elite level, it cleans itself up. There are very few parents at the elite level at 17 and 18, All-American National Showcase, that are stomping around making a scene. You may see that at 11 and 12. 
by the time you're you're, you're R.J. Austin's age, I, I don't know. You may feel differently, Clint. You were in those meetings at, at, at the Tropicana Field with those parents. It kind of cleans itself up a little bit. Fair no, enough. No, fair. Very fair. And one thing, parents... And if I'm wrong, tell me so, no, no, by the I, way. If I I'm would. wrong, tell me so. But that's I what would. No, you're not wrong. And the one thing I'll say and I'll share with the parents, you've heard me say it, whether it be on, on the forums that we've had or in the back rooms of those meetings, one of the best things you can do for your kid is just to be their mom or their dad. Don't be their coach 24-7. Some of the toughest the toughest days those kids are having are the car rides home after a game. That's the toughest part of their day <laughs> is the car ride home after a bad game. I mean, when parents spend money, and I've been a parent and I've spent money, you, know, you feel like you have an entitlement now to be a general manager. You're not the general manager. There's a good chance you're not even going to be the best coach your son has or your daughter has the rest of their career. You have a role. You have a space. You'll have a place they'll come back to. Tell them the truth. They need truth tellers in their life. They don't need bobbleheads. As these players move up, they get people that tell them what yeah. they want to hear, not what they need to hear, and they need to hear the truth spoken to them in a safe presentation, without emotion, without, without, without negative energy. Just, hey, no, that wasn't very good. It's okay to say that wasn't very good. You've got better in you. Let's find out how to, how to perform better. One of the challenges I would give players every once in a while, I just was in the Dominican. I asked some of the young players, 16, 17, who's your favorite player? And the, you know, the 16-year-old the, the would tell me, uh, Pedro Martinez. I go, okay, now how are you going to get to becoming Pedro Martinez? What's your plan? Hmm. Some of them had a plan. Some of them never even thought about that. I said, that's perfect because what you need to do is you need to start thinking about that now. If you want to be something down the road, what are your first steps? How do you get there? So... Parents can help. Um, there's other support groups that can help. Their teammates can help. But their coaches have a chance at really really molding them in a very proper and positive fashion. I no just doubt. like to jump in because um, from working uh, as in television, I'm always there early. And I don't, real, I don't think people realize the amount of work, like you said, Pedro Martinez, but the amount of work that like a guy in the NBA like Steph Curry or Giannis, he's always out there two hours before the game, like clockwork home and road, going through an incredible workout, just killing himself. This is before the game. And I know in baseball, the same thing happens, the batting practice, the infield. I don't think people, they, they play all these games, but do they realize the work that goes in to becoming a Pedro Martinez or a Matt Holliday? No, they probably don't. And I think, you know, that's for some of them, that's not even part of it. We've got to have just a sense of reality in the space that we're in and what we're doing and how we're doing it with the people we're doing it with. And that's why the one thing I'll try and tell players along the way is keep your circle, keep your circle small. You know, that mean in your posse, keep your circle small. Know the people that you're hanging out with. They are a reflection upon you. And the people you hang around and spend time with, you actually become. You pick up their traits. You pick up their energies. You pick up their biases, whatever they might be. So clean things up. Look to people that you see things that you like, you know, we, we all gravitate to people that we're attracted to, whether it's the personality, whether it's the, the presentation, whether it's their posture, you know, and whether it's sometimes it's just their heart, the love, the way they make you feel. What, what, what's the, uh, the word of the day for today, the high hurdle in this episode, we always have high hurdles, cute title again, by the way, great job on the cute <laughs> titles on this podcast. Uh, Clint, what is what is the high hurdle for you today? Focus, focus. Small word, five letters, and we could go on and on. 
for me, I still struggle with focus. My wife will tell you, my kids will tell you, I'm a work in progress. I'm so much better than I used to be, but that, that's not a pat on the back thing. That's called comparative self-denial. Well, I'm better than Joe down the street. Look at him. He said, look at that guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know, what, what I've learned is I'm the best version of me is the guy that's pouring into the person I'm with, whether it's my daughter, Maddie, whether it's my daughter, Ashley, whether it's my son, Christian, whether it's my wife, Carla, there, you make them feel like the most significant person in the room. I'm not on my phone. You know, we all have, at least for us guys that, that I hang around, it's like these phones are six shooters. It's in all the wild, wild west. We keep it our hip. We pull it out. We flip it around. We're, we're you know, come on. You know, and I have fallen that trap myself. So my focus needs to be acute and my focus needs to be intentional. Kevin, Dr. Kevin Elko, who's a guy that I've listened to, lived in Pittsburgh. He, he spoke at Alabama Crimson Tide. He spoke at a lot of college programs. This guy's a motivational speaker, but he's got some really good stuff out there. He shared with us in spring training one year a small phrase, and it's made a difference in my life, and I share it today. This probably would have been in 2012, so it's 10 years ago. Be where your feet are. End of statement. Wherever your feet are, that's where you are. Be there. No more needs to be said. And it feels like it feels like for the elite athlete, and I'll go all the way to Matt Holiday, all the way down to, you know, an R.J. Austin, you know, a Vanderbilt commit. I'll give that wide of a swat. Um, it feels like for the elite athlete, the focus, especially in the game, can come in with preparation, right? I mean, um, it's almost like this podcast. We folks have a production meeting. As amazing as we all sound together, we planned this out a little bit. Um, and I know we're award-winning, incredible. <laughs> I understand that. Send your emails to Clint, and uh, he will he will certainly get right back to you. That being said, Clint, did you see players? Gosh, I know as a, as a broadcaster, whether it's doing a college event, a major league baseball game, um, anything, um, our Perfect Game Weekly Television Show. You know, you prepare to be spontaneous, right? You do put in all the preparation so you can be spontaneous. Now that to me applies to focus as an athlete. Did you see that? Not only work, Clint, but smart work. You know, there's false hustle, and then there's eyewash. Those are two big baseball terms. And then there's smart work leading to in-game focus. Are the two correlated when you coached and managed the elite players? I believe so, and I believe I watched it happen. It unfolded before my eyes with elite players. The, the, fact, the preparation puts you in a position to play during the game. So you're not preparing while you're in the middle of the game. You might have to pivot once in a while, but all the hard, heavy lifting is done beforehand. Um, I watched it with I watched it with Ozzie Smith as a player in St. Louis. I watched it with George Brett as a teammate in Kansas City. I watched it with McCutcheon in, in Pittsburgh. I watched it with Todd Helton, Larry Walker. I watched it with Michael Young and Vladimir Guerrero in Texas. So I've got to see elite players get ready for a game. And that's all that their practice was, was getting them ready for the game. And anything they did early was to make them better in the game. It wasn't eyewash. It wasn't you know, we talk about routine. Don't let your routines become rituals where the ritual kind of gives you that confidence. You know, if I don't take these 13 swings before 6 o'clock, I'm going to have to do something else. No, it wasn't about this. These guys did everything just to get in a feel-good position, a confident position, a calm position to perform during the game. Um, I saw it happen time and time I'm again. So I'm super curious, by the way, and it's from Bull Durham. Go watch it, kids. Make sure your parents will allow you to watch <laughs> it. Watch the TV version of it. But there's, there's the moment in Bull Durham, of course, where, where Nuke is distracted and he talks about everything and he can't focus. 
Did you ever have a major league player that you were managing and there was something in his head and you looked out and you thought, this dude's not in the game. Whatever it is, his contract negotiation, the fact that he got a speeding ticket on the way here, and then you were able to have a conversation with him after, feel free to name names because if it's something bad, then don't do it. But did you ever manage a guy where, dude, are you in the game? And he actually looked at you and was like, I, I can't focus. This is why. You know, I'll take it one step further because I had that conversation from some managers to me at times back in the day. I mean, I'd tell you, the white rat, the couple times I'd earned it, he, took, he picked me apart. I remember spending back in the day. Whitey Herzog, by the way, folks. Whitey, Whitey Herzog. Herzog. I can remember back in the day, I spent, in 1979, I think I bought a pair of split-down sunglasses for $250. And what I mean by that is I didn't have them on. I dropped a foul pop in, in foul territory on a, on a day game in Oakland, and I don't have sunglasses on. He came in. He goes, where are your sunglasses? I said, they're... I was going to answer, and I just said, I, I, I didn't have them on. He goes, well, I know you didn't have them on. Um, by the way... You just bought that pair. It'll be $250. Now, $250 today for a pair of sunglasses is about right. Back then, that could have, I could have bought like 30 pairs of sunglasses. I mean, that, that, that made a point. But I wasn't in the game. I wasn't thinking. It happened different times. But I've had players where I've had to pull them aside and, and just almost you really got to square them up and look into their eyes and like, hello, hey, 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 we got a game going on out here. Come on, let, you know. Your GPS system, recalibrate, recalibrate, rec no, let's nail this thing down. But there are also, there's times when I'll say, you know, it's life. We're human beings. But those are teaching moments afterwards. What were you thinking about? How can we eliminate distractions? And I think I shared this with you all before in our prep meeting. One of, I thought, my greatest responsibilities as a manager or a coach was to eliminate distractions for the players. Help them to eliminate distractions so once they can go out there, they just play. It's like back in the day, it's free play. It's Friday at school or it's wiffle ball in the backyard. Love it. Love it. All right. We're going to talk about focus. We're going to talk about parenting as promised when we come back our conversation with Matt Holiday. I'm going after the dad, Matt Holiday. You guys can go after him however you'd like. This is 13 Pieces of Bubblegum with Clint Hurdle. Thirteen pieces of bubble gum. I've been excited about having this conversation. I won't ask many questions, and when I do, they'll be about parenting because I can't wait to hear a, a manager and a player talk. But Matt Holiday on his way to coach with Oklahoma State against Sam Houston State as his life evolves, hangs uh, how hangs out with us now. Matt, thanks for hanging out with us, man. This is an interesting, uh, eclectic collection of people here together in one space. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. I think the thing where I want to start, I'm only going to ask one, and then I may come back to you after Clint chats with you. The, the, the place I want to start is your life now as a sports parent because, you know, there's so much you've accomplished as an individual, but I'm curious in my space about Ethan, about Jackson, uh, about Grayson and Reed, and, and about being a sports parent. Um, you know, obviously, you had a good one. Um, you evolved, but how much do you embrace it? How much have you learned about yourself uh, how involved are you in being a sports parent? Because your two boys, especially Jackson and Ethan, they're prospects already and all Americans at the perfect game level. Um, how much have you enjoyed the concept of being Matt, the sports dad? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love watching them do something they're passionate about. You know, I, I think it's uh, it's fun. It's, it's you know, people ask me, are you more nervous playing or, or watching your kids play? And I think when, when you know how bad they want to do well, I think I'm, 
and you have absolutely no control of the outcome. It's much more nerve wracking as a parent to watch your kids uh, play uh, than as when when I was playing. You know, it's uh, like I said, you, you have no control. So I, I, I love to watch them play, and, and most importantly, I love to watch them do things they're passionate about, and and that's that's something the two older boys are definitely. Uh, love baseball they love to practice baseball and so I, I love that part of it and then Grayson's into the cheerleading and, and watching her do her thing and and then uh Reed uh he's just starting coach pitch uh this year and, and so I'm not sure what I don't know if uh I watching him play Fortnite because that seems to be what he's passionate about doesn't really do it for me quite quite like uh quite like watching baseball but I think there's still hope uh that he could uh find his uh his passion uh, somewhere besides video games, but currently that's where we're at. But I, uh, I really enjoy it. I love watching them play, and, and uh, uh, I, I love to watch them compete. And, and so it's it's really fun having having uh, the two older boys have a passion for the same thing that I do. I lied. A quick follow up because here's the thing: your passion, you watch them and their passion, and it gives you joy. We all know that as parents, all of us on, on this group uh, to talking. But I saw you in Jupiter, Florida at the Worldwood Bat Association World Championship. I saw you more as a baseball geek. And I understand you were there as a dad. You were there as a coach, too. But, man, there wasn't a time I didn't bump into you. You still crazily love this sport, don't you? Because I watched you stop and watch game after game. Most respectfully, a lot of former big leaguers aren't doing that. You still are crazy for this sport, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I, I tell people all the time, I don't. I'm not good at much, um, so I, I don't I don't have many hobbies. Um, so I, I do love baseball. I, I love to to watch it and coach it, and um, so it's I you know I grew up in, in that environment. I mean I grew up at the baseball field. My dad was a coach. Uh, my uncle's a scout. My brother's a coach. Um, so really, baseball is is all we've ever known. So I I, I enjoy it. I, I like to watch young players, and and, and uh, I like to to kind of see what they turn out to be and. Um, so now, you know, coaching college, you get a chance to, to now that I've watched some young guys, you know, and watching Jackson come through and, and go to those tournaments and go to perfect game events and, and see the players at, at the age of 14 and then see what they look like at 18. And uh, so it's, it's fascinating to, to see how that, that works in the development process. And uh, so, I, I, yeah, to answer your question, I, I still love, love the game. I, I, I love to watch the game and at all levels. What I've appreciated as, as much as anything about Matt um, is his overall continual development. Um, Matt, I, I was sharing with these, uh, I was sharing with everybody yesterday that you know I got to watch a young player come up. I got to watch a rookie season. I got to watch a kid in the minor league development program trying to figure out third base, and then we pivot to left field, learn a new position, basically at the major league level, and probably the biggest left field in all of sports. I watched the bat develop. I watched the base running develop, which nobody probably talks about a lot. But there was a day when Matt Holiday could flat out get bags. He got bases. He got bases with anybody. And then I get to watch Matt Holiday now on the other side. And I'm watching him watch Jackson. And I'm watching him, the gyrations. And they're minimal. They're not, they're not demonstrative, but he knows what's going on. He's got a good feel for things. I want you to share with us maybe the one or two lessons you've learned of the importance of when to coach and when just a father, your, your, your son, who's an athlete that you've learned. Yeah. You know, I, I think the one thing I've learned the most is that all four of our kid, my kids are, or our kids are, are so different 
and how they how they want to be coached, particularly Jackson and Ethan, and 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 learning how kind of what they need and want as far as what they need when they need dad and when they want they want instruction. And so I, I think Jackson wants it all the time. He's he's very receptive to it. He wants me to coach him. If I see anything, he wants the information. He he, he digests it well. Uh, he communicates really well. Uh, Ethan, he has to come to me. You know, we've, we've spent uh, time in the cage where I try to give him help, and he, you know, he, he gets after me and tells me he's got it. And he's, you know, he, he's so different and emotional uh, that I just throw to him until he stops and says, hey, what, what's going on? Do you see anything? And then it allows me to coach him. So I, I think the, the most important thing for me is, is learning your kids and, and how they how they how they learn and and when they like I said when they need coaching and when they need uh, parenting or, or just to be a dad and, and uh, encourage them. But uh, I, I don't ever want it to be about the results, Clint. To be honest with you, it's you know it's I know it's cliche, but it's so much about the process and and the and the work behind the scenes and then going out and just competing and having fun and enjoying the competition part of it because you've put in the work in the cage and you've put in the work, uh, you know, on the field and in the practice arena and then uh, just going out and supporting them and encouraging them and, and, uh, and, and not judging, you know, sort of how you, how you, uh, the emotions they feel from you based on their performance. I never want them to feel like I'm super, uh, lovey and happy because they got hits and then you know sort of grumpy when they don't um i only want them to do well because i know how well they want to do well and, and that that's a that's important to them so um i i guess that'd be the thing that i've, I've learned the most is to trying to figure out when they need uh you know they want coaching and, and when they want parenting i've got i've got one more follow-up question um you know i was i was fortunate enough we were together at a, at a very cool time in, in Rockies history. And that, that 2007 run to the playoffs, uh, the year you had in 2007, um, I've been vocal anytime anybody's ever asked me about the fact that the, the MVP award got geographically mislocated that year. It ended up in Philadelphia, had no business being there. It should have landed in Denver, Colorado with you. Um, and I don't say that because I was your manager, you know? Dusty Baker said this to me a long time. We were talking about MVPs. He was talking about Walker, Bonds. He goes, the MVP is the baddest dude in the league. Nobody said it better than that for me ever. The MVP is the baddest dude in the league. You were the baddest dude in the league in 2007. Okay, individual success, some team success. Now, this is another compare and contrast, which is going to be hard for you, but 2000, what was it, 11? A World Series championship in St. Louis. Were there nuggets that came from both of those that were very special and significant? You know, I, I think the one thing that when you talk about successful teams and you talk about World Series and, and even, you know, just us making it to the World Series in 07, you talk about relationships and you talk about, like, uh, the feel of the team and, and accomplishing something and, and a special group of people coming together with all uh, the same motives and the same intentions of, of winning uh, so I think there's a lot of common denominators and in, in great teams, uh, particularly when you talk about uh, what you remember when you look back on on great teams and great seasons. Uh, it's all similar stuff. It's relationships. It's uh, guys that, that picked each other up, uh, guys that got along great off the field, uh, that spent a lot of time together uh, away from the park. And, and th those are the common denominators. Obviously, in 07, 
Uh, it was a group of guys, a lot of them, which I came up with and through the minor leagues and sort of grew up with. And so it's super special when, when you, you the evolution of coming through the minor leagues and, and sort of, uh, you know, reaching the World Series in a, in a crazy run. Uh, and then, you know, in 2011 with the Cardinals, um, you're talking about, you know, just a, a kind of an older bunch of guys and, and, a, and a great fit. Of, of personalities and and, uh, and playing for you know Tony Larusa and a staff and just I don't know it just kind of again it came came together late a lot like it did in, in 07 as far as we weren't really I think we were I don't know like seven games back in August or maybe eight I, I don't remember exactly but it was an unlikely story that we even made it to the playoffs and then you know obviously make the run to winning the World Series so I, I do think the overriding I guess characteristic is is is, uh, is the bond and the character of the guys in the room. Um, I had I. That's. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to keep going, Clint? No, go ahead. I, I was going to say I I've so enjoyed watching your career. Um, I don't know. You know, Albert Pujols swing, your swing. It um, um. Anyway, I, I have less of a question and more of just asking you to comment. You know, this this podcast is all about quotes. Um, between Clint and John, it's just every day a barrage of inspirational quotes. And one of our favorites is the Winston Churchill quote about how success is not final and failure isn't fatal, but what counts is the courage to go on. And, you know, so many times I watch athletes that achieve phenomenal success like you, and then they just kind of disappear. And in watching you and in listening to your podcast with your wife, um, you seem to continue to inspire and to accomplish. And it occurred to me that um, I think your secret fuel is your faith in your family um, because it's a common thread throughout the, the what you're working on now, your philanthropic um, endeavors in your podcast. I, I was hoping you could say something about your secret fuel. Yeah, you know, I, I think that obviously faith, my faith is, is the most important thing to me. Um, it, it is what guides, you know, my... Uh, my life and, and, uh, and, and everything that's important to me um, and my family, you know, I, like you said, uh, you know, with, with Leslie and the kids and, and the things that we've been able to be a part of um, with our, you know, our uh, Homers for Health Foundation and, and everything we've been able to do um, as far as that goes. So um, it's uh, it, it, it fuels, you know, every day and, and having an impact on, on people and, and getting a chance to, to coach college kids and, and help them through a pivotal point in their life. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's obviously, and, and through the podcast and, and trying to, to share with the, the world, you know, the, the things that are important to us and, and what we think is, is most important and that's our faith. So, um, that's, uh, it's, it's the most important thing to me and, and, uh, and I, and I love to share it and, and I love to, uh, to, uh, to share my passion about my faith and my family and then baseball. And that's really sort of, uh, the things that, that I, uh, that I wake up and, and aspire to, to do. It's great to watch. Well, jump in there, well, John. I mean, yeah, you, good you, question, Susan. Jump I in there, John. I followed your career as a broadcaster, and, and I'm not surprised your love of the game because I've seen it. And, you know, from what Clint, all the accolades that Clint talked about, but, you know, the, we talk in perfect game world about getting players up into the major leagues. or. But I'd like to talk about, you know, you hit a home run, you lasted bad at the Cardinals. You went to the Yankees. Yeah, you went through some difficult times. I know that you have stuff like Table 40, your podcast. I know you have your children. Talk about the transition, because for a guy like you that has that competitive drive, I'm sure it was hard to just turn off, but it seems like you've been able to find, to put outlets, coaching, your kids, 
But I'm sure there's a lot of ball players out there that have struggled with that because, you know, it's like retiring. It's like, what do you do with the time? Where do you put the competitive drive, that space? Yeah. You know, I think the one thing for me is uh, we've uh, we, I, I've, I've had the chance to, to obviously jump into the college realm and, 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 and ha, you know, kind of fill that that competitive drive um, through coaching. And and, uh, and I think, you know, just finding outlets like playing basketball. I play a lot of pickup basketball or playing pickleball and um, just always kind of being athletic and competing and and, uh, and finding outlets to, to kind of exhaust that 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 competitive spirit that, that really a lot of, you know, I think athletes, it, it, you know, it's, it's something that you have a hard time turning off uh, when you're done playing baseball and you've done it your whole life. And all of a sudden it comes to an end and, and uh, you know, you're trying to figure out where to, where to use that or, or how to use that. And then, so, um, you know, I, I think, like I said, through, through, uh, through just finding ways to compete. I mean, it's, it's probably um, a little bit pathetic, but I, I played on a, an intramural <laughs> basketball team here at OSU with some of the, the uh, basketball managers and uh you know some funny things happen through that you know you just you know i've got the, the kids the college kids are some of the things they say is you know how old is that guy you know and uh you know I, one guy said uh yeah of course he's better than us at basketball he's been practicing 20 more years and, you know he's, uh, you know so a lot a lot I don't, I don't i'm not necessarily proud of some of the ways that i exhaust I hear my competitive spirit but um you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I just, you know, we've got a group of guys that play pickleball and, and there's four of us and, and we talk a lot of trash and, uh, through text messages and, and we'll, we'll go play pickleball for like two hours. And, um, you know, we change the rules a little bit. If, if you get a body shot, if you hit somebody with the ball in the air, it's two points automatically. Um, so, you know, we just find ways that it's, it's cool living in a college town and, and, uh, and having fellow coaches that have that same competitive spirit um that that also are looking for outlets uh to, to to exhaust that so um i find my i find my way around town competing i'm uh, not always i'm super proud of it but um i i do find uh an outlet uh almost every day to be honest I with sense you. an alter ego here <laughs> jump in clint no he just like he, jump in he there just, hurdle he he there's a there's a little kid in there yeah. that's why hence the term big daddy there's still a little kid yeah. in there He's the kind of guy that goes to the company picnic and you know, he wins all the trophies. He eats all the hot dogs, he drinks, wins all the trophies, whatever whatever the game might be. There's been so much that, that I've enjoyed in, in sharing and watching him play. One of the biggest kicks for me was obviously I got to manage him. That, that was a treat. That was an absolute treat. But then when he gets traded to the Cardinals, I was the first one that I, I, I murmured when I heard he went to the Cardinals. I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> Because I know what we're going to deal with 19 times a season. Oh, yeah. right. And I thought he'd gotten to that point in time when he was a middle of the lineup bat. And he was a run producer. And the last question I'm going to ask you, Matt, we're going to let you get on your way. But this is this is my perception. This could be completely wrong. But what I saw you evolve it as a hitter, you know, from the 2007 season where the numbers were huge. You hit 340, you hit for average. You were a good hitter with power. You hit homers, you drove in runs. And then when you went to St. Louis, I saw a guy that basically for me, what I would tell our pitchers, you throw him the fastball, he's going to hit the fastball to right center field, and he's going to let everything else speed up his bat. Those are the balls you're going to drive to left center field, or he's going to bang deep to straight left. With two strikes, he's, he'd rather give up a body part than roll over on a ball. 
Tell me the maturation of yourself as a hitter, as a run producer, if you went from seven to 11 and finished up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the one thing um, I always took pride in, and I think I'm not necessarily, I mean, I struck out 100 or more times every year, but I always took a lot of pride in competing in the box. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that that's something from a mentality standpoint that I always took a lot of pride in is, is the competition. And you might strike me out, but I was embarrassed about it. And I think nowadays some of these guys, it's, it's almost like it's okay to strike out and, and nobody, it doesn't really bother anybody. And, and it's just become this thing where, um, you know, that's just another out and, and some of those things. And I, I think for me it was, it was more, uh, you know, I was embarrassed to strike out. And I, and I think that uh, the competition part of it every day, um, as we talked about earlier, it might be a problem I have, but uh, I love the competition. I love the grind of it. Um, you know, as far as like my, my approach, when you talk about hitting and, and I think about even with coaching college kids, like understanding the concept of keeping your front side in and being able to stay on the ball, uh, especially uh, the ball that's going down and away from a right hand hitter is, is where they want to throw it. And if you're an easy out, they can make that pitch. And, and if you can't, if you can't handle a slider going down and away or, a, you know, a two-seam fastball on the outside corner, if, if you can't handle that pitch, um, it's that's the pitch they want to make. And if you can't cover it and make them uncomfortable to where they have to pitch you inside and, and, and fear of hitting you or leaving the ball over the middle that you might hit out of the park, um, those, to me, that's the most dangerous hitters. And, and that's something that we try to teach our kids is you got to cover the ball away. And if they make pitches in, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll adjust back. But – um, so that Clint, that was, you know, my brother helped me a lot in, in coming and, and transitioning from the minor leagues and, and a lot of the hitting coaches um, that I've had the honor of, of, of playing for and, and talking about how to stay inside the ball and, 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 and hit the ball in the right center gap and, and, and be in there and, and still have something left for the off speed or a ball that hangs up. Um, that was that was what I was always striving for is, is that the consistent hitter. Uh, the Miguel Cabrera's, uh, you know, the, the, the Manny Ramirez and the Albert Pujols is the guy that could, could hit the ball to right center with two strikes or take his base hits in a, in a big spot with a man on second, hit a hard ground ball up the middle and score the run. Um, that To me, that's a complete hitter. And, and I think nowadays, it, 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 and I'm not to say that, you know, I, but I, I think the, the one-trick pony, the easy pitch to guy that wants to pull the ball in the air, uh, and, and that we're okay with that, I think has is, is lost its way a little bit and it's made the game a little bit a little bit hard to watch when you talk about all the strikeouts and walks. Um, so give me I, I, I think that the game will trend back will trend back the other way. I, I think there will be uh, there'll be more of an emphasis and an appreciation for guys that can put the ball in play and use the whole field and, and I think that'll come back around and be my opinion. Great. I love that answer. I'll tell you, you get these 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 three yeah. started well, on that I, answer, man. I, I, you know, it's, it's there. We're going to thank you. Well, we're going to thank you, and I'm going to leave you with this. Here, here's my final thing for you. It's a dad time again. I, I don't know that you read this. This is from one Mr. Ethan Holiday, prior to the Perfect Game 14U Select Festival, and, and the question was very simple. Who inspires you, whether as a person, a student, or an athlete? Please describe why and give this some thought. Ethan says... Jackson Holiday, my brother, inspires me. He's an incredible leader, but more importantly, in our home at, at, with our family as well. He's the oldest. I look up to him. Jackson is humble but competitive. I admire his work ethic and his ability to help everyone around him get better. I want to lead like him and outwork everyone in order to get better every single day. Your thoughts? You know, that's, that's, uh, 
it's really cool. I, first of all, I didn't know he could write that well. Um, second, but he he's a he's a very uh, receptive kid, and and that is true about Jackson. He's a he's a great kid. He's a um, super easy to parent. He's been really easy to parent, um, and and that that is all true. He's a very soft spoken, but but a good leader, uh, good kid. He treats. It's been really cool, Darren. To be honest with you, that they they're on the same high school team this year. And uh, so that he's a he's a senior. Jackson's a senior. Ethan's a freshman. And and in the morning they have weights at, at seven. So he takes Ethan at seven and they go work out and then he takes him to breakfast and then he takes him to school uh, every morning. So it's been really cool. Their relationship and their bond is has been uh, as a dad and as a parent. It's been really fun to watch uh, the way they they uh, they get along so well. And um and that, that right there, I think it, it warms your heart as a parent that you might be doing something reasonably well as a parent, which sometimes I know, if you, as you guys know, sometimes you don't know if you're doing anything well at all with parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's fun to hear. And, and uh, like I said, it, it warms your heart to know that, that uh, your boys um, love each other and, and the appreciation Ethan has for Jackson. Yeah, I love those secret <laughs> weapon quotes. I've made yeah, moms and dads qua- cry. I love those yeah. questionnaires. You should be proud, Matt Holiday. Thanks for hanging out with us. We really appreciate it, my friend. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. I, I, I'm anxious to, to listen to more of these podcasts. Uh, appreciate you guys uh, doing this. What, 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 we, we appreciate it. Ride safe. When we come back on 13 Pieces of Bubblegum, Matt Holiday just unearthed what these two guys are going to want to talk about the entire time. Old school versus new school. Matt said it. Now since Matt said it, that's what we're going to talk about. This is 13 pieces of bubble Thanks, gum. Thanks, Big Daddy. All right, guys. Thank you. You know, the other thing that's really cool is I, I'll tell you about Matt is that, you know, I didn't always have this in my life, but the best thing you can hear your kid says about your dad is that he loved my mom. And you know, there were some relationships I had that wasn't in play, but the one I have now, I mean, there's a time when Christian has shared that, you know, that, you know, the best thing that's fun at home because my dad and my mom love each other. And my dad and my mom, you know, they, they listen to us, but they listen to each other. And those kids have gotten to where they've gotten because of both parents. Leslie is phenomenal. And she also struggles. She also, you know, it's like the old plate spinner on the Ed Sullivan show. You're trying to accomplish a lot of things as a mom. You're trying to accomplish a lot of things as a dad. Sometimes the mom shows up way better than the dad at the exact right minute when it's needed, too, that pushes those kids through. My son's got some toughness from his mother. When I haven't been around, there's been things he's needed when I was traveling. And mom showed up. Carla stepped in and gave him what he needed, you know? So it's really cool for me to see that transition with Matt because I got a lot of players that not all of them have finished that way are still married with kids with multiple kids we've all gone through some challenges some guys got it right later on Um, but that has been a fun story to watch how they have stayed together that relationship has continued to grow and develop and it is a reflection upon their kids there's no doubt about it it sounds to me john like you probably start the edit back at that right because you're you're hearing what clint said i think that's that's you're going to hear this as part of our podcast Final segment before we say goodbye to you. I mean, Matt, just open that can of worms with my two guys here, the old school versus the new school. And, you know, the game's going to evolve and everyone's going to be making contact again. And, and here we go. But 
I think it's a concept of both, right, guys? It's a concept of old school, uh, new school approach. And I think the one thing, Clint, you wanted to talk about a little bit, and we've hit on it so many times in this in, in this show, is old school versus new school, because you can apply it to anything, but it's coaching. And, and uh, you know, Matt, Matt kind of, I'm listening to Matt Clint. Tell me if I'm wrong, old school versus new school. He's got a little bit of both. It sounds like he's got a little bit of both. He actually uh, is in school, right? He's not old school. He's not new school. He sounds like he's in school, learning how to grow as a coach every day. But old school versus new school. Spot Clint. on, Darren. And that's the term that I've, I've actually shared with people. Um, the last two years, I was consulted by you know, a handful of general managers because I, I was out there. I had no skin in the game. I wasn't with a team. So I have general managers that are my friends. They'd call me. Managers that are my friends would call me. Some players, older players around, and I used to always say, hey, this is not, if you're looking at it old school versus new school, I said, I think we're missing something. I want you to look at it as old school, new school. Let's just be in school because there are things we do need to apply from the new school, learning, labs, numbers. There's some things that work. There's some things that make sense. However, there's some things from the old school that you just don't run away from because they happened 30 years ago. Tradition can be a wonderful thing. Tradition can also be a vision killer. I think that's happened in our sport a little bit. But as men, however, I should say as men, when something breaks, most men, we overcorrect. And I think baseball got a little bit fractured and broken, and we overcorrected in too many areas where we eliminated the human element. We took the heartbeat out of the game. The fact that we, we weren't allowing them to fail, the fact that we tried to shrink the starting pitcher's innings from you know, seven to six yeah. to five to uh, opener to one. Uh, we've reinvented the game. The game's pretty good on its own. I think what we've done is show what a beautiful game was invented, you know, over 200 years ago. And that some of those foundational pillars need to stay in place. Now there's some things that need to be picked up. But at the end of the day, we don't have enough balls in play. The game doesn't have enough action. We need, we need players to, to play. Baseball, you know, basketball, you can go four on one. Baseball, you can eliminate a guy. Four wide, the intentional walk, it's the only sport where you can let not, somebody not play. Um, and we've learned how to do that effectively well, uh, letting people not play. We need, I think, to, to find that heartbeat again. If the game had an emoji attached to it right now, it might have that one little tear running down, you know, for me. That one little tear. It's a wonderful game. We're having negotiations right now. I'd like to think that more conversation would be about making the game better. We do need to deal with what, what they're dealing with. Uh, you know, the owners, have, I think, have had some really good things on their side for a while. The players are trying to neutralize some of that and find some common ground. I still like the idea of an independent arbitrator coming in. They seem to be making some progress. I hope they can get it right. It's a game, and they're not pieces. They're players. They got a heartbeat. They got emotions, and the game runs pretty good on itself. I look forward to the day when we can go out and honor everybody. You know, there's families that need to go out and afford to be able to go to a game. There are people that don't want to spend four hours at a game, and the games are running four hours sometimes. So I understand yeah. all that. But if we just right. work like the NFL, the NBA have done, they've made their game better. They've tweaked their game. They've actually changed the rules to make the game better. We need to stay focused on our product, on how we make the game yeah. better for our fans. That's where I'm at. I have three observations. Um, number one, Ted Simmons said in the Hall of Fame speech, the game will evolve. Along will come a guy by the name of George Brett. 
hit the ball the other way. I can remember I, I, when Matt Holliday was talking about hitting the ball the other way, I can remember his swing. I just see it, him reaching out, and you know, hopefully we see more of that. I, well, the other thing I have to say is why does all the great players have to end up in St. Louis? Because, I mean, over the last 20 years, Scott Rowland, McGuire, now Nolan Arenado, um, it's just crazy to see from, from me and for Clint, you, you managed in the division. I've covered the division for the last 18 years, and it's just crazy that you see so many great players play in, in, a, in a Cardinal uniform. The two birds on the bat get every big leaguer. The two birds on a bat, that hand-stitched design on the front. You think about iconic uniforms. You think about the Dodgers. You think about the Yankees. You think about the Cardinals. Some people will throw in the Cubs. You know, the other ones have kind of gone through a lot of different variations. It goes back to the initial thing, though, for me, when Darren was talking about coaching. Coaching is getting a player from point A to point B that he can't get to on himself. You help him along his journey, whether that's spiritually, right. physically, professionally, scholastically, you, you, you are there to help. One thing I learned early on about coaching, the most important thing I learned, I need to be an unconditional coach. In other words, I need to give and not look to get back. I don't need for the player to say, oh, no, thank you very much. You helped me along the way. I, I know that I was there. I know that I showed up. I see the success that he has. I don't need to say I'm a reason for that success. I was put in his journey path for a reason to help. And I've been fortunate to be in the past of some, some players that had tremendous journeys, very special seasons. And I do think at times now in our game, we are looking for individual attention, not just in the playing aspect of it, but as far as this offensive game has come on what's most important, and strikeouts don't matter. They're just another out. And I sat in a room one day where a guy was telling me, an analytical guy was telling me, well, RBIs don't really matter. And I said, okay, right there, I just want to call a timeout. Because for 17 years, I'd have a press conference in the afternoon before the game. And I'd have a press conference after the game. 162 times a year. After the game, 30 games, there was 15 managers talking about having opportunities to score and didn't do so. That's why they lose. That comes up in every manager's post-game conference. RBIs matter. Matt Holiday talked about it. The RBI guy back in my day was, was Tony Perez. He would drive in that runner from second base with two outs. He would talk about coaching. He would talk about his hitting coach. Bat to ball. Hit it hard where it's pitched. There are things that still work within the game today that will always work into the game. Those don't need to be pushed aside because they're old or your grandfather taught, taught them. Tony Perez, 15. What was your third thing, by the way? You yeah. had a third thing. Yeah. You only gave us two things. Tony Perez, like, what, 1,500 career RBIs? My third thing is just kind of, once again, piggybacking off of what Clint said, is the best players, that's the NFL model, the best players need to be playing. And I think if there's one change I'd like to see, the mentality is getting the pitchers. There's those stats in that article from Jason Stark about how we haven't seen pitchers compete in competitive uh, elimination games. We don't see it. Justin Verlander was the last guy to take the ball in the ninth. That was 2017. That was five years ago. I'm sorry. That, to me, is drama. That, to me, is com competition. Uh, you know, the game can be talked about. As a manager, Clint, you can be second-guessed, which is great for the game. And it's once again, that's that was my third point. Sorry. That's your third. Wow. Yeah. Closers are good, though, right? Is, aren't closers great players? Well, closers, closers are, and I think there's a time and a place for the close. No doubt. I, I've, I've been fortunate. I had a lot of really good closers. 
Yeah. Um, but I had to learn along the way to let players play. And it wasn't, and it was about right. because, you know, I didn't want to win more than they did. That, I think sometimes the coaching philosophy, you want to win more. No, you don't. You know, that's just, you, you feel no. more tied to it than maybe they do. And I think it, it, you need to get out of yourself. And the, the way I found to help me get out of myself, here was my focus as a manager or coach. I need to let the players earn their trust, show them I cared about them. And, and sh once I earned their trust, I could show them that I could help them get better. That was it for coaching for me. But I had to earn their trust first because no players ever allowed me to coach them that they, that they didn't make me earn their trust first. Then they would listen. And the fact then if you get to know them holistically, that you actually care about them, they're not just a skill set with first step range or quickness and they're better left than right. And you better get them out, you know, after a three pick, pitch mix, uh, you know, they need to develop a four pitch. You need to talk to the kids, talk to the players, get to know them a little bit. I love the coaching aspect still to this day, and I'm back involved in it in some aspects. Just left the Dominican Republic watching 16 to 20-year-old kids play. And the 20-year-old down there, that's an old kid. 20-year-old 20 20 kids don't even play in the big leagues anymore, right? Mm -hmm. To see kids play a game when it's all they have versus I'm going to go out and watch a high school game tonight at IMG, which are some of the best players. That are, you know, There's going to be three, probably two, three, four first-round picks. The energy on the field is so completely different here in the States than it is in the Dominican when these kids are playing because that's all they have. And there may be 10 or 12 people at home that they're trying to feed versus the, the distractions our kids have to try and navigate through here in the States. I'm not saying they're bad kids. They have a lot more to deal with. But to see that, revisit that pure joy of the game, that pure passion of the game, that pure love of the game, man, when you get around that, you know what it looks like, you know what it smells like, and you want more of it. And real quick to John's point, Clint, you never, I'm guessing, took a baseball away from a guy in the seventh or the sixth even who was still dominating a game. Did I you? hope I didn't, but I'll bet I probably did. I mean, you know. I, yeah, but isn't it earned? Isn't what John's absolutely. talking about and what Jason's talking about, that's earned. Like pitching in that moment that Justin's pitching and it's earned by Justin. It's earned by Jack Morris. Like that's earned. Yeah. I, my yeah, regrets, you know? my regrets, so, things that you you would walk home as a manager sometimes is that, you know, that you, there's that. Did you walk, by the way? Did you have a place near the ballpark? Did you sometimes walk? Sometimes I would walk, but, but but the thing the thing I used to hold on to, you know, there was one part of me saying, you know, my job is to take them out before they give up runs because there's no worse walk for yeah. a manager going out there after they've given up four. The walk of shame when both of yeah. you got to walk back off yeah. now. And then that time where you can give them the opportunity to pitch and then just to see them react to working through it, that's the most valuable thing that I always saw as a player. For me to be on that sidelines, to watch their emotion, what they were able to work through, that was the blessing that I got. And I probably wish I would have had it more often. There's times I probably could have extended more. Here's the thing, and this is the most important takeaway of all of this to me. Clint Hurdle managed for two teams as a visiting announcer – that you could walk to the ballpark and get some exercise, and you could walk from the ballpark and get a beer after. That was the most important thing. He managed in Denver. I'd go through Lodo, find some great pubs, oh, yeah. have a couple of a couple of pops, or in Pittsburgh, my goodness, going right back over the Clemente Bridge, taking the left. Yes. We watched that whole area evolve. Really, I think that's his biggest give back. That's his biggest give back to the game, is that he managed in two places where you could, as a visiting broadcaster, enjoy burning some calories, adding some calories, yeah, you know, sure. going and then coming home. So, Clint, I thank you for that. I, I want to leave you guys with this because, gosh, we've got to end this thing. Um, I, I want to listen. 
because old school, new school, I think um, Tim Corbin, head coach Vanderbilt, multiple national championships recently, chatting with Hunter Pence on some of our college content, uh, talked about, you know, the pressure of being a preseason All-American, the pressure of trying to win a college World Series. Here's what Tim had to say. I don't think it's much different, Hunter, than the conversations that you had with younger players when you played. I think it really gets down to centering them on what's important and not getting caught in the weeds, because I think the reality is, as a player, if you want any type of consistency, not so much the success, but just consistency, it's really doing a lot of small things well, and it's really staying organized mentally. And I think school does that for you. I think it, you know, especially like a place like this, I mean, you, you are going to class. I mean, that's that's part of your day. But what it does is it naturally centers you on what's important at that time. So if you're not focused during that time, then it makes it very difficult to even have consistency in the classroom. And the things that I think are notable, at least in the 20 years that I've been here, is 19 years, with the exception of 20, our grade point average has always been better in the spring than it has been in the fall. And that's not because of the reduction of classes. They're still taking 12 and 15 hours, but I think it's those concentration hours is your time, right? I mean, a lot of time is the devil. And when, when you've got your time from eight o'clock to 12 o'clock, you're in class, and then you're intentionally coming down and eating, getting in the cages, or doing something an hour and a half before we start training, I, I think the kids can stay pretty, pretty regimented. And, you know, I like that for them. And I think they like it for themselves, right? We don't, we, we, we don't tell people we want discipline, but we crave it. And so what I think is interesting about that is it's simple. We crave discipline as human beings. They made better grades during the season when they had to, to put their hours together. He's dealing with modern kids. Their phones work. They know how to deal with all that. They have they have advisors and agents, and he still deals with all of them. I do Pac-12 basketball. I've done seven Arizona games in, in this season. They're one of the best teams in the country. Tommy Lloyd's brand new. He came in and challenged Ben Matherin, Azulis Tubelis, and said, these are the two guys that haven't bought in. In the first two weeks, he said that. Both these guys are going to be first-round picks in the NBA draft. They've bought in. He's a modern coach while still being old school with the discipline. He shoots half-court shots with them at the end of their, their, their shoot-arounds. I think the Tim Cormans, the Tommy Lloyds, by the way, Tommy Lloyds first ever job after respectfully standing underneath Mark Few for an entire generation in Gonzaga. I think there's a place, as, as Clint, you said it, Dayton Moore has come on our content and said the same thing. I'm in school. Be in school. You know, Don't be old school. Don't be new school. Don't get stuck. Um, be in school. Thanks to Matt Holiday, Incredible. Clint, just your vision for this podcast. Amazing. Thanks for getting him on. Um, obviously, John and Susan for all your hard work and organizing it. Uh, like, download, subscribe. We want you doing all of that. Find us on Perfect Game's YouTube page. Watch us on perfectgame.tv. 13 pieces of bubblegum. Keep chewing on us.